Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Comedy on Power Talk, thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And just wanted to wish all the fathers out there a uh, happy belated Father's Day. Uh, it's very important um, to um, because your kids are a, a direct reflection of your spirit. Uh, their personalities might be different, and they might take different courses in their lives. But at the end of the day, um, the spirit, uh, the independence of thought, the individuality of of their own, you know, sort of constitution is something that you have complete control over. And I think that, um, you know, my next guest is somebody who's been creating on the bandstand for maybe the last half century. Uh, he uh, has played with a lot of the original masters of the music, and uh, there's no doubt that even though he might have been on the road sometimes, uh, not necessarily with his kids, um, they understood that he was on a path towards salvation and individual freedom while trying to sing for his supper. And uh, suffice it to say, he's still with us, and he's still cooking the groove and, and getting back into things after this extended pause. Glenn Drews, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. It's my pleasure, and uh, good morning, because <laughs> I know it's early. Oh, man, yeah. and I'll tell you, it is, we have... I got to tell you, I did it. Or I appreciate you doing this because uh, it's already ninety-five degrees here at nine in the morning, Oof. and no no air conditioning <laughs> in the studio. So let's just have a ball. Um, you, you know, I I wanted to ask you about if you could d- differentiate in your mind between an artist and a musician. Uh, let me think about that for a second. And let me let, let me let me, let me give you let me just tell you what Julian Priester. I don't know if you know the trombone player. He told me that um, you know, uh, it, what he said was, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, you know, as a musician, you're you know, you're either one of two things. You're, if you're a musician, then you know, you're picking up the gigs that you have to take. That you, it's not the music you want to play, but it pays the bills. You know, if it's a funk gig, it's a funk gig. If it's a studio date, it's a studio date. You're backing up a singer, whatever. An artist creates their their work, their art, and um, will not get reimbursed immediately. But over time, because of the quality and hopefully the quantity of the art, you will have patrons that will pay for it. It will come, but but you're able to actually um, do what you truly love to do and i realize that it might sound pollyannish but you know the jazz life i mean there were there were geniuses that starved to death i don't need to tell you i mean they starved to death because they played the music they wanted to play or they got ripped off or they were a junkie but you know i mean i'd like to know where you where where, where do you come down on that well let me see um let me start it at the beginning. I'll try to make this as short as possible. That's fine, yeah. So I'm basically, I'm basically a self-taught trumpet player. Uh, I studied a little bit, but my first teacher was a clarinet player. And uh, when we went into lessons, he would just wet the reed and we off we'd go. So when I got to college, <laughs> well, I, I actually wanted to be a history teacher. And... Uh, I got accepted to uh, a state school here in New York. And when I got to college, all the trumpet majors were sitting around discussing warm-ups. 
and I thought they were talking about throwing a baseball. <laughs> I, didn't, I never warmed up. You guys were just swinging right away. Going. You were swinging with that clarinet cat, man. Yeah, swinging right, right from the get-go. Oh, I love it, man. Um, so, and I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this story. Um, so I, I graduated, and the the day after I graduated from college, I went on the road with Lionel Hampton, and uh, we had a connection uh, through one of my high school teachers. So anyway, I, I leave. My first gig was in Davenport, Iowa, which was home of. Big Spiderbeck, hmm. you know that name. Sure. And the next day we flew to Los Angeles, and uh, I was one of two white guys in the band. Everybody else was black. It was great. These were the, I mean, I learned. I was so green. I didn't know anything, and I learned from these guys, uh, just being around them and listening to stories. And so anyway, we get to L.A. and the first night, the piano player. Uh, was a gentleman by the name of John Sproul, and he was a real style. He had a, a gold-tipped cane, and oh. he always wore a big hat tilted to the side. And he was a, always in a suit, you know. Oh. So he said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you to this club out in, in around the corner from the hotel." And it was a club called Sold Out, S O U L apostrophe D. And we went there that night, him and I, and. I didn't realize it at the time, but the band was Tower of Power. That is so ridiculous, dude. My dear friend David Garibaldi on drums, man. Yeah, yeah. and this was 1971. Right, I mean, they, they were just they, starting. They were just starting to cook. Right, yeah. and they, they actually have a, they have a tune called Sold Out, and that's that club, you know. I, yeah, no, I so know, I know was, the tune Soul was, Vaccination. They have a tune called Sold Out? Yeah, Sold oh, Out. That's great, yeah. Um, anyway, so that was the start of my thing. And I just started to learn and sit next to these great musicians and move from one to the other. Um, so I don't know, I, I would, I would probably classify myself as a musician because, you know, it was so varied everything like what you say from the live bands on the road. Sure. No, I mean, to, I mean, I just wonder if there was ever, I mean, how you came down. Well, you know, okay, so I, I, I just, you know, I do a lot of transcription of my interviews. I have uh, my fourth book's about to come out. And, and uh, this was, I, so I, I keep diving into the this reservoir of content that I have. And I wanted to play this audio clip for you. It's a, it's a game called Name That Voice. And I, I don't expect you to know who this is, but... It's possible you collaborated with him, but what he said in this clip was profound, and uh, and I heard it yesterday. I wanted to play it for you and then come back and get your thoughts. Great. Okay. Cultural heritage is a beautiful, precious thing for everybody. And when you realize that every single person of every heritage has also gone through suffering and also has something very beautiful, and you could celebrate that, rather than trying to be something that you're not, then you can appreciate every other person on the face of the earth and their ethnicity and their heritage and respect it and feel at home with it. So if you're playing jazz, which was essentially, and it was an African-American art form, and you can do it from the heart and do it as respectfully 
as if you're trying to play Mozart or Beethoven or Bach or act in Shakespeare. You're on the case, and you spend your whole life trying to learn how to do that. You don't go to a pawn shop, buy a violin, and then say, I'm going to play the Beethoven Violin Concerto with the New York Philharmonic next week because I own a beautiful set of black suit with tails and a, and a uh, white bow tie, and I can impersonate Yasha Heifetz or some great violinist. You spend your whole life learning how to do that. And it's the same thing with jazz, with the blues, with Cajun, with folk music, with any kind of music or any kind of art or any kind of sport. It's a lifetime devotion. And Stan used to practice a whole lot. Sonny Rollins, you just interviewed recently, I said he practiced so much that he finally went out on the bridge because Lucille, his wife, said, man, we can't keep moving because the neighbors are complaining. Charlie practiced. Parker used to practice 12 hours a day until his mother, at one point, was forced to move. And I mention that because Stan really put in the hours learning how to play the horn and really took great care of the kind of reeds that he used and, and everything that he did. And his Jewish heritage was something that he carried with him. And the little discussions we had about that, we both shared that realization that we were part of something that was very old, very beautiful, very much under the radar, just as jazz was under the radar, because to the point that it was accepted, jazz and African-American art was accepted by the stereotypes. And the stereotypes not only demean those who are stereotyped, worse, they make people of that particular group feel that if they don't act like the stereotype, they're not authentic. You're waxing poetic right now, Amrin. No, I'm not poetic. Jake, I'm not poetic. I'm telling you, this is real stuff. No, I, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to digest Because this is, this is the real deal. This isn't any kind of theory. This is the reality of what we dealt with and what people today still deal with, although they don't know that that's what they're dealing with because it's been assimilated and buried and franchised so that people sit around in these places with the, trying to get into some club where they're having the same type of electronic death beat that they use to torture Al-Qaeda prisoners, and they don't realize that that's something that is dissuading them from the reality of trying to face life by looking for the beauty part, which surrounds us if you're aware enough to pay attention to what's beautiful at the moment and what's beautiful every day. If you, if you think about that rather than what you're supposed to do to fulfill the worst curse on humankind, which is to be fashionable. And if you feel like an undesirable ethnic creep, you can assuage that sense of inferiority by buying some trash junk, eating some trash junk, listening to some trash junk music or some rotten TV show, and that if you're around that putrefaction, you'll feel better and be more attractive. Thank you, Glenn, for sitting through that. I, I did. You catch his name? I, I mentioned his name there. Did you hear that? Yeah, I, I couldn't get. I couldn't get. Yeah, that. Out. So that was uh, my interview with David Amram. Did you ever play with Amram? No, I never came across him. Of course, I know his name, but uh, I just want to read this I, back. He, I want to read this back to you. This is important. He said, 
the point at which jazz and African-American art was accepted by the stereotypes. Now, that really, to me, means commercializing or record companies. And the stereotypes not only demeaned those who were stereotyped, worse, they made people of that particular group feel if they don't act like a stereotype, they're not authentic. And so I don't want to get too high in the sky, but I mean... And I know you cut your own path and had to sing for your supper, but I mean, it was revel- it's revelatory. I'm only 43 years old, so it's like, you know, to come up and, and see and to know and to talk to people, you know, before the world caved in on him, like Bill Cosby, who was obsessed with being a jazz drummer and every single cat, Pete LaRocca, Mickey Roker, Max Roach, I mean, on and on and on, Philly Joe. Everybody had their own individual sound. Every trumpet player had their own individual sound. That was jazz. That was individuality. And quite honestly, they didn't they didn't get rich off of it, but they made livings doing it. People like Miles and Train did okay. Dizzy did okay. But the commercialization and the stereotyping of it, then all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute. Why are you playing yourself? You should be conforming to what's popular. And that's what, I mean, it's just, where are we at today with this homogenization of sound? I, you know, and I don't expect you to necessarily say that any of this relates to you, but I do know that you grew up at a time when, you know, I mean, listen, we went into, in the studios, we got to the point of a, an efficiency model and we got into people say, people, producers saying, don't play yourself, just like drummers play, play the last hit, play the groove of the last hit. It became about conformity and that's not what the music's about. And like he said, after a while, you get assimilated and you digest it. And pretty soon, you're just di- you're just inhaling formulaic crap. And that's kind of where we're at, in my mind. I kind of wanted you to just riff on that any way you wanted to. <laughs> there was a lot in that. And, you know, when you say it like correctly, like you just did, it it is... Yeah, I mean, everybody's trying to copy the latest hit. Yeah. Yes, everybody's yeah. trying to, you know, be the, you know, if you get a singer, everybody's trying to sing like that. That's why artists like Sinatra or Dean Martin, mm. uh, those guys had, which, but remember this, back in the day, right. so, I'm, so I'm 72, so when I got to New York, when I turned 18, there were all these great jazz clubs, and it wasn't, there weren't just groups that were put together for the week. These guys were on the road with the same group, playing the same tunes, getting ready for the next record date. That, you know, um, and they were all set groups. They had hotels, all had showrooms, and singers used to come. Bobby Darren would come there, and Vic Damone, and they had orchestras. And so it was a completely different time. And, uh, Hang on. I'm on a thing, Glenn. Sorry. That's all right. So it was a completely different time uh, because now, you know, it's rents in New York. It's so expensive to have a club. And so what do you do, you know? And you're just trying to get things to fill in. I know. Uh, uh, kind of thing. So I would agree. I would agree 100%. And the music is... It is a devotion. It is a, a lifelong commitment. Um, yeah, what you, I mean, I mean, that's when you first got there. Can you talk about? I've talked to enough cats. I mean, in New York in the seventies, if you move there, um, 
I mean, there was almost people would say that there was almost it was almost opaque. There was no like color. It, it was. The, there was no gentrification the way it is today. Obviously, jazz was was waning in popular music, but it was still the remnants of it were still there. I, I just wonder, about, like when you talked about being on the road. I remember I've done a bunch of interviews and he, with Pat Martino, and he's a dear friend, and he he talked about being in Lloyd Price's band, and that was more of an R and B outfit. But it, you know, it was like Red Holloway mm-hmm. and Slide Hampton and these cats, and and he what he learned the most was like. When he'd be taking a solo, the guys would be going, yeah, man, keep going, keep going. They'd be cheering him on. That was the best lesson he could have ever had. But the point is that can you talk about some of these lessons from these beyond genius cats that maybe in Hampton's band that you learned about just being yourself no matter what? I mean, to me, I can't think of anything worse than what Amram was talking about, which is basically being an assistant even though you're the one producing it, you're an assistant to somebody who's directing the creative content. That's kind of, I mean, I don't, I mean, I guess if you're making a lot of money, that's cool, but that's not art to me, you know, but I just wanted you to talk about a lesson or a couple lessons that have stood the test of time for you. I, uh, okay. Um, so, but you know, you t- you're talking about the money and I don't care what it is, you know, if it's, like a, a political deal or a financial deal, somebody gets sure. busted, you know, or, or a thing. But it all—it's always about the money. Always. You know. Always. It's always about the money. So, and it's hard to get away from it. You know, you're struggling artist, and the guy's guy goes, "Look, I'll back your record," but then you owe him. You know, you owe the guy, and you're going to do what he says, play the songs he wants, maybe with the musicians he suggests. That so it all goes back to the money, but. Um, unless, unless that, so, going back to the Priester thing, granted, you could be a struggling artist, but you wait for those philanthropists to come along and say, I love what you do, and I want to back this, and I'm going to give you full creative control. That's kind of what I was alluding. Again, that's, that's you know, that's uh, there's a lot of uncertainty and insecurity in that, um, but I'm with you. I mean, there's not, yeah, I, I wouldn't, uh, I just, I wonder about how, how you, what those cats in that first band, you know, the nonverbal lessons that they taught you that to just have that artistic integrity in whatever you were doing. Well, let me, let me forward a little bit. And um, so I did a tour with Dizzy. It was Dizzy's 70th birthday. And so the trumpets were John Faddis, Earl Gardner, who does Saturday Night Live, uh, myself and Virgil Jones. Oh my God, Vir- and, dude, Virgil freaking Jones, man, sickest tr- trumpet <laughs> player ever, bro. I've heard him on those Mike Longo a, records, man. He's ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, it, it's great, man. Everybody, you know, I mean, they're we, all great. Yeah. So I mean, every oh. every night we would do two tunes. We'd end the first set with Things to Come, and the second set with Tunisia, or vice versa. I love it. And he'd had the, he had the trumpets come out front and play you know solo but we had to follow him you know and you know think about playing night in tunisia after after following dizzy <laughs> but he would just sit back with his arm he leaned against the crook of the piano he'd just sit there and he'd just be digging on it digging, you know digging it right with you man and he just yeah he was i mean it was like incredible man he was like dizzy gillespie digging on us digging it man you know? Th- Thelonious was the same way man 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, so, it was, you so know, what, 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 what did that? What does that? What's the overarching? What do you take away from that? That that they wanted to share the music. That it was bigger. They knew that it was bigger than them. They wanted to keep the lineage. Because I mean, there was no ego there. He was like your biggest cheerleader. He he, he was, and just think, he played that song every night of his life. <laughs> you know? I mean, he's thinking about that. How many? 50, he definitely did. Years worth. You know, so it was just great. You know, and going. And then you, because you wanted to play really good, you know, there was no uh, shucking and jiving, you know, we really tried to play good and tried to play better every night and, and not just play licks, but really try to just play the song and sure, it was, it's, it's inspiring. Um, the other one was, I'll tell you a funny story, but I, I, I came out and joined Buddy Rich's band. And actually, I only joined for a weekend because one of the trumpet players couldn't be there for this weekend. So I never met Buddy before. And everybody calls me by my last name. So I walk into this little high school gym in New Jersey. And everybody's sitting around. I was in my 30s by that time. But most of the guys were just out of college in the early 20s. And uh, I meet the lead trumpet player, and he said, look, i got to go warm up. I had a tough night last night, so just make yourself at home. (laughs) And just whatever we can grab, we'll grab. So uh, Buddy had it in his rider that uh, he he, he had two big garbage cans, one full of ice-cold soda and one full of ice-cold beer. So I reach down, and I pop a beer. And all of a sudden, everybody stops and they turn around and look at me. <laughs> I'm going, boy, that's kind of strange, you know. So, Buddy walks in, comes right next to me. So I'm I'm about six one, and Buddy was about five six, right? So he comes in, standing right next to me, and he <laughs> he starts in. You've heard the Buddy tapes, right? Well, I know, I know. Well, you're good. What did he say? The bu- the the bus tapes where he goes off on a rant and sure. he uses the f bomb. Yeah, you've heard them, right? Yeah. So he starts in with a tirade like that, and he's going on, and on <laughs> about and the beer, on, about the screaming. beer, about the beer. No, 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 about the, his musicians from oh. the night before. Oh, I, you know, if I hear one more clam tonight, you're all fine, and he's screaming, right? <laughs> and so I reach in and I grab the second beer, pop it. And now they're not looking at Buddy, they're looking at me again. Oh, my God. Then he turns to me and says, Drews, and I haven't met him yet. So he goes, Drews, how's the beer? Is it cold enough? I said, yeah, Buddy, it's great. He goes, good. And then he starts in with this tirade again and finally storms out. Then I find out you weren't allowed to drink the beer. (laughs) <laughs> right <laughs> he hated he hated beer drinkers you could smoke pot till you couldn't stand up but he hated beer drinkers. really that's so interesting so, wow so so we get on the bandstand and they're playing melatonin, and i'm in the jazz chair so i don't know what on earth i'm gonna have to do so I'm thinking to myself, man, this would be great. The rhythm section's playing. This would be great if I could get my feet wet on this tune, you know. He turns to me, and I'm three feet away from him. Turns to me, 
and says, Drew, it's giving me a little harm in you. Okay. I love it. I, I love this, dude. I mean, that is the throwback. So one, right of my, oh, one of my heroes was Sweet Edison. Yeah. And, and uh, so anyway, I start playing like Sweets, right? Dad, 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 I'm laying back, you know. Like, buddy starts screaming at me like he did to the band 10 minutes before. He's screaming. God, <laughs> we don't lay back in this band. Get up on it! Get up on it! Oh yeah. my! This and is... I saw. I started to play real. I started to play real, kind of fast. And on, you know, he he didn't like laying back too much. And then after that, we was so fine. But I, I ended up going back out on another tour for about six months with him. And I got to stand three feet away from him every night. And you talk about a master. There's nobody that played like Buddy. You know? Yeah. No, I mean he he that well. I mean, if you, if you, I think that that's the most special thing about, I mean, I've probably done 2000 interviews and most of them have been with my elders, some people that stretch back much older than you, but, and that have left this planet. But this early seventies pocket of time is amazing. And even through the mid seventies, because you had this connection between all the musicians, and I'm not a, you know, people try to pigeonhole me, or they did maybe eight years ago as a jazz journalist, but it's really all music. So, like, you know, the cats that I've interviewed were on the bandstand with Bill Monroe, or on the bandstand with Ray Charles, or on the bandstand with Dizzy, or maybe even Bird once, or Thelonious. The, the point is, the lineage was all intact, and someone like Buddy, for instance, like, you know, or Shelly Mann, or, you know, it's, it, and I just wanted you to talk a little bit about like how hard it is for cats today because they're basically not playing those small gymnasiums or they're not there's not a, a, a live domestic touring circuit for musicians specifically improvisational musicians uh, there's a touring circuit for Journey or Tower of Power or Steve Miller just regurgitating the same old hits that you saw back at Sold Out in 71. But there isn't a domestic touring circuit for... for and, I, and I just wondered, wanted to know how... Um, why, if you felt like how important the lineage was and how intact it was at that time. And if you think it's fair to say that the lineage is not that intact. The other thing is that not only isn't there a domestic touring circuit, but cats like Drew's, if you were around today, you'd be learning some kind of, I don't know, you'd be learning jazz in academia, which I don't think you can learn, you can't codify that language. And I just, I wonder no, if, just, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, go ahead. Um, just think about it. Back, so, uh, when, so I got out of college in 1971. You had... Duke Ellington's band on the road still. Right. You had Basie's band. Right. You had Ham. You had Maynard. You had Buddy. You had Woody. Uh, still, and even the, the grade B bands, like the Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey bands or the Miller bands that toured, there was a feeder system. And there was still, there was still enough older guys that had been around and played bridging that gap. Exactly. And so the younger guys could, younger guys could, is the correct word codify they could associate you know and then you and you just keep learning and it's different styles you're hearing different styles every night 
and it, and it just gets in your head. It gets See, in you your just ear. nailed it. You're, it's so so explain explain that education. That is the that's an auto auditory education. I mean, that to me is the best because today most young cats coming up. I don't want to be stereotypical, but most cat you your generation were primarily you learned how to hear the music first before you learned how to read it. Now all the cats are learning how to read before they can hear. So as a result, their ears are locked. The fact that you were on the bandstand and playing with all these different styles every night, your ears were huge. I mean, it was really an amazing magnetic time for music. And I just... I, oh, it's great. Yeah. And, yeah. Go, ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I just... I mean, I'm wondering... Oh, what, I, I want you to talk about what you just were talking about, the education, the the, the different styles, the, the, the antiquated PA systems, how you really... I mean, I just... I mean, sometimes the, you know, I remember Mike Maynary telling me that, like, um, <laughs> you know, with Buddy, like, I mean, it was very unpredictable. Sometimes he wouldn't p- play the bass drum the entire set. You couldn't even hear the upright player sometimes. Um, and yet today, cats are paying for And that's the other thing, is that in, you came out of college in 71. I, I mean, I've interviewed all, basically, the original guys that went to what was known as the Schillinger House, more recognized as Berkeley School of Music now, but when they, like, Charlie Mariano would come off the road, either because he was trying to kick a habit or pick up a, a new instrument, and he'd go, to, he'd go to Schillinger House for a few months, you know? And then he'd go back on the road as a professional. And now today you have cats going to an institution, the academy, to learn a, lang- a street language, come out with a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt and no guarantee of a job. I mean, it's pretty whack, right? I mean, it's it's like a warped record, man. But maybe I just I want you to riff on it from your point of view. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm just in my own little hermetically sealed bubble or not. No, I, I totally agree. I mean, the music schools today are turning out these musicians. That, I mean, I know they have huge chops, but I mean, thousands, that, yeah, I, 10, yeah, but there's no where are you going to work? For I know. One thing. And then, you know, um, but the thing is, you can't learn, well, we're talking about jazz, but you cannot learn jazz out of a book. You can learn how to play patterns and, uh, you know, you know how to circumvent chord changes and all that stuff. But the old guys, man, I mean, re- they listened to records. They played the records over and over and copied everything. And then tried to play it in different keys. Exactly. And it, it like and yeah, and it, so it was it was not a generic way of doing it because you hear guys. I remember one night, uh, Sweet Basil was a club in New York. Sure. And and the, and they used to have a session. I think on Monday nights or Tuesday, whatever it was, and all these saxophone players would come down, and they were all going to Juilliard or Manhattan something like that and uh they i mean they just played course after course and notes it was like it was like the arbin book you know and then it was the the guy whose gig it was was chet baker uh. and he would come in and just play he just play one course and it was like okay you know oh, hello so sick did you get that did you get that you uh, know? yeah right 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 and it's and it's the same way with like, one of the things I really, like, I'm not the greatest jazz player in the world, you know, because I've spent so much time doing other stuff, but one of my things that I do really well is backup singers. 
And there's an art to that, too. You know, you hear guys backing up a singer, and it's like they're soloing, you know. Right. No, 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 no. You don't do that. <laughs> you know, you're, you're accompanying. You serve, and you serve, yeah, you, 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 exactly, you support them, yeah. So, you know, but it, it's just, it's, it is crazy, you know. I mean, where are these guys going to, kids are coming out, uh, you know, young men, young women, and it's, it's just Can I, can I, do. you know, uh, Glenn, I want to, I want to ask you, do, do, do you, in your, I mean, just as honestly as you can, I mean, <clears throat> do you still feel our, and part of it's our society, I mean, if you, I mean, if you're going to make the rents so high in these urban bastions, you're going to push out a lot of um, the culture, it's happening in every city. Uh, and then on top of that, you're going to have these boutique high-end clubs where people are only concerned about the bottom line, and they're going to bring in very safe, very formula trip kind of stuff. And so I, 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 I asked, do you still think in our, you know, beyond greed society sort of, you know, I mean, there's so much out of whack uh, financially, do you still feel that our society views a musician as a viable profession or is, or is it, it music as a musician's gift to the world? I'm not saying it was ever easy. I'm just saying that there were, and again, the cost of living and the idea that musicians, live musicians, basically guys that have just been playing live and pl trying to play the music they love, their wages have not gone up since like 1984. And I just wonder about if you still think that our society recognizes musicians as a viable profession. I'm, I'm not talking about Wynton Marsalis or people that have already made it, Quincy Jones. Just like like you said, there was a farm system. There was a feeder system. It was acknowledged that this was a viable profession. You may not get rich, but you're not going to starve to death. You know, you can find your way through different bands, get some studio gigs, get some luck, and make it. Now, what do you say? Well, it's like music. Um, whatever, whatever kind of music it is, whether it's country western, whether it's symphonic, whether it's jazz, whether it's rap, the good music will survive. And it's probably the same thing with musicians. Yeah. The really good players will find a way and it'll survive. But more and more guys in New York that were pretty successful see the writing on the wall and a lot of them are trying they're going back to get graduate degrees masters or doctorates and try to get a college uh college gig but even that has changed because there used to be a time when you were tenured and you had that gig till you retired but now they give you a three-year contract and then huh. they'll get somebody cheaper you know it's the whole thing is changing it's like like we were saying before with the cities when you went to New York or you went to San Francisco or you went to Tokyo or Paris, they all had a different flair. Now they all look the same. It's all the same restaurants, the same clothing stores, and it's crazy. It's and crazy, man. Like, it's, 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 I really appreciate you because, you, I, I mean, that's that formula trip stuff, that's just on a large scale. That's, I mean, we are where we are because of this bending towards – conformity that has started from the top with conglomeration 
when you when you have all these conglomerates, they make everything streamlined. And most cat that's the other part of jazz. I mean, that's that you know, I, I wanted to play you another audio clip uh from another interview, uh and it will lead into my next question, okay? All right, great, sure. Spiritual thing is is basically when you're playing, and it's just not bebop. This is other music too, but bebop is in jazz is probably that's the high end of what we do mm-hmm. as jazz musicians. But but just the spirituality comes from it's it's like it's like something. Now this this may sound abstract, but it's something that Wayne Shorter said to me one time. He said that the only way you can really 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 play is that you have to go to the store and buy some milk for your grandmother. You know, <laughs> when he said that to me and the drummer, Omar Hakim, now he had a few few drinks, a few old drinks. Right. I said, wow. But a couple <laughs> days later it hit me, you know, because, you know, it's like to come, if you have one of those kind of families, you go to see your grandmother, she says, go to the store and get me some milk, and you go there, there's a love, there's a... There's something, there's a love for something other than just what you're looking at. It's like your own personal love, which, you know, which could come from God, which could come from the force of of life. It could be whatever it is that makes you, that you think makes you tick. Mm -hmm. That if you tap into that, whatever that is, it's not, it's not a material. It's not the instrument. It's not the notes. It's it's the life force. It's this. It's it, and that is very when you operate on that band, that's uh, that's or on that uh, frequency in life. That is very spiritual. Mr. Drews, you want to take a guess at who that is? <laughs> the voice sounds very familiar, but I yeah no, I, it's okay. That was uh, my first interview with uh, the great Stanley Clark. And uh, when he was, so, I mean, I just want you to riff on this. Uh, To me, we are such in a situation now where uh, cats feel so much pressure to play. You know, you go to a jazz club in New York, some that didn't make it through the pandemic. And the onus is on getting people their dinners and espresso drinks, 45 minutes set, finish it. Get enough. I mean, it's everything but the music. I mean, if you're the the, the attention spans are not there. Uh, music is. I'm not saying the musicians come in with that approach, but the idea of going and seeing something burning that's going to open up, that's going to expand your consciousness, that's going to create descarga, that you're playing. The musicians are playing as if it's a matter of life and death. I mean, that's all I care about. That's the music I love. I don't care what genre it is. It doesn't have to be bebop. Was there a time in your career when you honestly felt um, before, you know, maybe you became comfortable, you know, having gigs, studio gigs or Sesame Street places where you were more just playing parts and serving songs and having a little creativity where you just were playing the gig as if it was a matter of life and death? Because guys like Lee Morgan and Miles, I mean, people are always like, oh, he, they, he's turned his back on the audience. It's like, you know what? Those guys basically were like, you know what, to the audience, we really dig our music, and we hope you dig our music, but even if you don't, we're still going to play it. And it was freaking great. I mean, they played as if it was a matter of life and death. And I just wanted you to talk about a time in your career where you had that ethos playing on the bandstand. The first time I really got it 
I wasn't involved playing, but I went to listen. Hmm. I was in high school. It was 1967. I took my dad's Dodge, drove from Long Island to New York, parked right in front of the Village Vanguard. Oh, man. Dude, it was great. It was so beautiful, man. So great, man. Yeah, it was great. And I was right behind Clark Terry's car. (laughs) (laughs) That is so... And anyway, I walked downstairs, because the Vanguard was downstairs. I walked downstairs, and there's Thad and Mel, the band playing. And it was like... The band had just started then, you know, it was uh, in its infancy. And holy mackerel, I was like, man, this is the shit, you know. <laughs> what, 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 I mean, what, 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 I mean was, later, was the sweat like flying off of Garnett Brown's brow? I mean, what was going on that made you say? Oh, they were, yeah. they were, they were just into Snooky Young yeah. and Eddie Daniels and Jerome Richardson oh. and Dodging. Forget about it. Was it. That band, you know, oh, forget about they it. were just... They were just so into it, man. There was no fooling around. They were playing music and playing nothing but music. So then, fast forward to 1983 when I joined the band. So Thad was gone by then. Yeah. But uh, so I stood right next to Mel for 23, well, not quite 23 years because he had passed, but probably for 18 years I stood right next to Mel. And And same thing. Never, ever. And, and you know, when you, when you have to solo and you got guys in front of you like Dick Oates and Lovano, uh, you know, like, and all that stuff going, I mean, you just, you just go for it. You know, you go for it. And, uh, it's, and you don't think about anything else but the music. So I, I, I love, no, I I mean, that's just, I mean, when you, can you talk to younger cats about how, uh, how like how to like like just let everything fall away and go for it i mean and not be a fr- because ultimately that's the that's the biggest key from this lineage thing i remember dave holland <laughs> talking about it uh the older musicians i'm not sure who he was referring to but they'd all say you know you always ha- you need to have your story to tell, you know. And there's all these great stories about people going up to Lester Young and you know just just going off and playing every note, like playing super high tempos and incredible techn- technique and riffology. And and then and then Lester would say, "Now that's beautiful, but what do you, what's your story?" And you know, like yeah. I, I, how how what's in this paradigm? If you do any private teaching or even, uh, I mean, it's just so hard because your t- your lessons were on the bandstand with like a bunch of other people night after night. I mean, you had to have a short memory if you had if you hit some clams. You had to go. I mean, it's so weird now. You do these uh, lessons with cats, but is there a way to, in your mind, have you found a, a way to get cats to go for it i mean what does that mean in today's musical world and i'm not i mean i'm talking pre-pandemic obviously but how can is there is there some ingredients that can cats can still go for it well you know i had done not a whole lot of teaching but i've done you know my share of clinics and you know sitting with a school band and you know, for the day and whatever. And the first thing I tell them, 
because they're always nervous, you know, when somebody comes in. Of course. And, sure yeah. and, and I'll give you a little thing, but uh, so anyway. But the first thing I tell them is music is fun. Music is fun. Music is not a drag. Music is, uh, you've been blessed with this pleasure to be able to play music with, with other students and, and whatever, right? So then we get to this thing because most of the students hear straight eight things now, you know, the rock thing. Sure. They don't really know how to swing. So I write on the board three quarter note rests, like rest, 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 and then two eighth notes. So I'm, I said, I'm going to count one, two, three, and on beat four, those eighth notes, I want you to say bow wow. So this is actually from Duffy Jackson. No, I, I can't take Oh, credit, my God. He, it, he, he just left us, didn't he? Yes, he did. Oh, just, my God. Yes, not long ago. Yeah. But he was great. Anyway, so this was his thing. And I always use it because it's so simple. So I go one, two, three, and, and they're, they're nervous, and they go bow wow, bow wow. <laughs> then they, I said, "Listen, I said I'm trying to prove a point here. I want to show you something. So I want you to yell it out and scare me. So I do it now. I go one, two, three, and I hear bow wow. I said, now you're swinging. Now look at measure sixty-one in the music. You have three rests. This is for the horns. You got three quarter note rests." And two eighth notes at the end of the beat. Let's play that. And so I go one, two, and they go, bah, bah, you know, <laughs> and I go, that's it. Now you're swinging. That's how you, that's how you learn how to swing. Wow. But meanwhile, you, you know, you, you still have to be proficient on your instrument. Trumpet brass players have to have endurance chops, not so, many, not so much for wind players, you know, woodwind players. You know, but, and you have to have some facility. You have to have some range. And, uh, you know, so that all comes into play. But I always tell them, go home. Because now you can get any record. You go to your cell phone and dial up, you know, uh, Sweets and Ben Webster. Just put it on and play. I said, just put it on and play along with it. You know? And keep playing with it. And you'll learn more and more and more and more. So... Uh, I, I mean, I do, you, do you feel like, I mean, when they, do, do, do they seem to, it's hard to know what swinging is if you don't know how to swing, even if maybe it feels different when you're introducing the bow wow concept, but um, do you think it's going to take? No, no, they get it. it. They get it. It really works. They get it right away. Wow. I mean, you have to keep that, you know, and then you have to embellish on it and do another couple other passages, and but they get it now. That, that. Bad that it's always long, you know. Instead of going tat tat, tat tat, and it just it kind of works, you know. But huh. yeah, I mean, you know. you know, like I mean, did you like when you first were you getting were you able to to go and see, uh, you know, some like would you go see Dreams that band Dreams with the Brecker brother? I mean, because Randy had the first wah pedal and then miles saw him there and 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 took it took that but that you know i mean like there was a lot of stretching out loose soul off i mean the, the those early 70s bands were so ridiculous because like that 16th uh, the straight eighth um like that rock thing was 
was coming in, but it wasn't saturating music. It was just being blended into, uh, you know, jazz. You had that. That was sort of the bitches brew time. And I, I just, it, to me, I listen back to it, and it's just so beautiful because, like, that iteration of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, I mean, they were they were putting out albums that had Snow Queen by Carol, Carol King into, uh, into Maiden Voyage, you know, and, it, and they were doing it flawlessly and it was burning and uh and it was real people and i just i i want you know did you have opportunities to even be on the bandstand with any of those crossover groups from that time after right after you graduated school well not really because i i just went right on the road and spent uh so from age 22 i guess to age till age 33 okay I was so on the basic, road okay i, I want to ask you something so how many how many you were on the road 200-plus days a year? With Woody, you were on 50 weeks a year. 50 weeks a year. You took two weeks off at Christmas. That was it. Holy. I mean, <laughs> Drew's, I mean, that, that's... No, I mean, that, no, I'm saying like that, but that, that, but that's... But, I mean, that's insane. That's, that, I mean, that, that is... That's that's the musician's life. I mean, you were making bread. I mean, you were doing it. I mean, it was. I'm sure there were hard times, hard nights. Woody, I mean, that's the other part of it, though, is that. Uh, can you talk about uh, geniuses that that got that died broke? I mean, that's part of the jazz life too. I mean, there. That's the Woody. Woody is an example of that. I've interviewed Alan Broadbent, and I've interviewed other guys. You know that. We're in that band. I mean, I don't want to make it Pollyannish that everybody was. I mean, Philly Joe was pawning, was trying to steal people's drums. I mean, people were starving to death. You, you know, that's the thing that's amazing. I is that there was also a lot of. Uh, oh, a lot of guys. You know, yeah. Mel Lewis didn't didn't do well. You know, I mean, and he he ended up he had a a heart issue. He was doing a gig and. He went back to his hometown of Buffalo yeah. and had some kind of a heart issue, and they had to hospitalize him. It wasn't really serious, but while he was in there, they said, what's that thing on your arm? And we had been watching this thing kind of grow. as melanoma, and by the oh. time they found it, there was nothing they could do. Oh. But, you know, I mean, Mel did okay, but he didn't, he didn't, he didn't pass away with a lot of money. Right. Um, and, and Woody, you know, Woody, I mean... His best friend Abe Turchin took all the money, and he owed the IRS like three years. And they were going to make a settlement, and then some. The guy that was handling the case retired, and then the new guy came out and opened it up again. And uh, you know, uh, what a horrible story! I mean, how how did you uh, like that? That is also I think that's important because we've been, at least I've been sort of romanticizing about this fantasy that I have because I wasn't born during these, this time that we're talking about, but it's like, how did you deal with that? I mean, it, was it something that you recognized that you always had to advocate? I remember Ndugu Chancellor, the great drummer, told, rest in peace, he, he said, I, I didn't want to be a starving genius. And he goes, I think probably the amount of sessions I did, and he goes, I, I probably only didn't got ripped off one or two times, and I made sure I bankrupted those cats because I took them to court or whatever. I held them accountable. Did you learn to advocate for your art at a certain point just because you saw some of these cats, for better or for worse, um, just sort of disintegrate and then be and then their 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 families were left with nothing, even though their legacies are beyond the pale? Uh, 
Well, my rule of thumb was I never asked about what the gig was going to pay or whatever. Right. But if I got burned once, I would never work for the guy again. Wow. And uh, like that kind of thing. But I was lucky enough. I worked for, do you know the name Don Sebesky? Are you freaking, dude, I, dude, the man is one of my personal heroes, dude. Oh, he's, and I, so I somehow. Is he still, well, is he so still with us? By the, is, my, he, is he still with us? He is. He is. He's, I think he's got some kind of Parkinson's. Dude, I would, I I mean, is he still, I mean, because I, dude, I need, I mean, I've interviewed Creed Taylor. I mean, dude, so is he, like, is he cognitively okay, or he's kind of like. I think so. I can, I can. Yeah, no, because honestly, I mean, dude, that dude. Well, anyway, what's your story about Sebesky? So, I shared a loft. So, I moved, when I left Woody's band, I shared a loft in uh, Chelsea, the uh, part of Manhattan, with Joe Lovato for 10 years. Wow. Which was totally great. Holy and God. Joe had burning it up. Day. Dude. Holy shit. Yo, he's great. And the sweetest guy, we still were still close friends. Ah, and uh, I was doing Bono, more commercial stuff, but he yeah, he was the big jazz guy sitting in with Elvin and like that. Dr. Lonnie so, Smith, dude. Ridiculous, anyway. dude. Yeah. Oh yeah, the whole thing. Mm. Full motion and uh, all those guys. Insane. So uh I'm in my so I, it's eight o'clock in the morning. Phone rings, and uh, the voice says, "Is this is this Glenn?" I said, "Yeah, it is." He goes, "This is Don Sebesky. <laughs> I want you. I want you to work for me." I go, "Yeah, right." I hang <laughs> yeah, up the phone. Prank, dude. <laughs> I'm going. What? Why Sebesky calling me? You know. <laughs> so the phone rings again. He goes, "Glenn, it's Don." I go, "Are you kidding me? For real?" And he had this little ten-piece band, and then I started doing jingles for him and. I mean, talk about a guy that was into his art. We did a, there was a thing for Hallmark cards. It was a Halloween-themed jingle for, you know, for television. Man, what he got in 60 seconds, talk about a work of art. And here's a guy, man, it's just. I mean, dude, I mean, beyond, dude, the guy was beyond, I mean, his. This, everything was cutting edge with that guy, man. It was, it was so out, man. It was so out, it was in, you know, it was unreal. Uh, the best and the nicest guy. <laughs> you know, he's just a beautiful cat. You know, so beautiful. I have. Man. I, I can try. I can try to get you his number. Dude, I, I need number, to get this. I need, dude. You know, I mean, I've been on this pilgrimage. I, it's just, I, and I really am not interested with him talking about his memories. I, I just, I'm more interested in like his philosophies. Anything he can put together, I'd be, I'd be so humbled by that. I mean, the, 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 I mean that. Can you talk about how he would, you know, at least uh, what one thing I loved also is that, you know, I must tell you, I mean, I just came back from California. It was my first, <laughs> as a rogue journalist, I've been on the road. I was on the road a lot before the pandemic, and then I was off for 16 months, and I just went back to Cali and saw some incredible music. I don't know if you ever knew the uh, the Congero uh, uh, with Dizzy, uh, Big Black. Did you ever meet Black? I never met him, but of course I know. Okay, well, Black and I, Black, I mean, this was the most, I mean, I wound up in Cathedral City, California, at this, like, in this country club at a restaurant last week watching Big Black crushing the conga drum. I mean, with a quartet. It was on, I'll get your email, I'll send it, it's unreal, dude. 
But the point is that um, he, oh, yeah. How old? How old is he now? He's not young. I mean, he. I mean, he's he's in his eight. I would say probably close to eighty. Um, still as creative as all get out. I will say this: <laughs> live music, when you can find it. I mean, it's not as prevalent, like you said, as it once was. It was everywhere, and it dictated our culture. Live music is still incredibly strong when you're around cats that are going for it, like, or they're playing stuff that they don't even know how to play, but they're going and they're pulling it off. Right. But the other thing about the, the studio recording that's very bothersome to me is that modern studio recording. And and then again, this goes across all genres is that, you know, I've talked to some of the great producers and A&R guys like John Simon and Tommy LaPuma, rest in peace, you know, everything all those iconic band records or Seals and Crofts, and I would assume, I, won't, I don't want to assume with Sebesky, but it was, a lot of stuff was worked out in pre-production. Once the record button went on, you took the first take, second take, you were done. Today, everything, there is so much post-production and the trying to finesse and get everything quote-unquote perfect that the music, I don't care how good the, the lyrics are, how good the, the messages are, or the music, it's all sterilized. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about, this, at least in the studio with Sebesky or anybody else, like the onus, if the onus was on really just if the arrangements and stuff, you work it out in pre-production, you, you run down the tune a couple times, record button goes on, boom, you hit. Is that the way it was? Uh, uh, basically, it was just... And remember, you know, back in the day, I'm going to get, remind me to go to back in the day. But, yeah, because you, you were doing four gigs uh, a day. You didn't have time to freaking romanticize about the thing. Well, they wanted to get you in and get you out. You know, Absolutely. The, but but so, so what they would do, like with a jingle or uh, even Sesame, because they use tape. This is before the computer. Oh, yeah. Because everybody now has, it's all computer and you can punch in and punch out and take a little spot and put it over here and. It is, yeah, it's perfect now, but it's, 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 it's not as good as it was, I, I don't think. But, uh, so what they do is they have a, like they have a click, not a click track, but it's a, a frame click thing. And they want certain things to happen at a certain point, and you work it out. But then sometimes they go and change the film. So Sebesky would have to redo it live, you know, fix it up live. Wow. You know. Wow. And... I mean, he would just go, okay, uh, measure six is only going to be three beats. Then we get to measure eight, that's going to be six beats. And, you know, hold these notes and play these notes. And he just, he's dictating what to do. And you're writing it down as fast as you can. And uh, the funny thing with him, he did all his own copying. So, like, oh if there were four God. trumpets, you each. Yeah. And, this <laughs> and dude is insane, man. in pencil. So you even wanted to play first trumpet on top. Or fourth trumpet at the bottom because if you were second and third, it was a it was a mess to read the notes, you know. So who was the who but, was that? Who but was think that, about. Yeah, who, I, I want you to think about. Yeah. Back in the day. Go ahead. Now. So I like I'm I always have the TV on when I'm doing bills or I'm doing something, you know. All the old westerns, all like Perry Mason, even Leave It to Beaver, Andy Griffith Show. It was the music, and it was I mean. It was all human was beings, involved. yeah. Yeah. You know, it was you know, it wasn't just some guy with a keyboard doing something. I mean, it was a whole orchestra doing it. And the trumpet guys, I'm it, 
you never hear it clam. It's just beautiful. And there was <laughs> there was just a tape running. And if they if they blew it, they had to go do it again. Absolutely. You know. So I saw a little bit of that. Uh, no, but I mean when when you started say, to I mean, have when you started to have the sequencer and the synthesizers making up instruments. I mean that was the that was when music took a major. It was it was very. Uh, well, I mean, it was just, I can't imagine uh, how... D- it took a left-hand turn. It did. It so, certainly did. And I think the worst thing that, that the Musicians Union, whether it was, I guess, the AFM, which is the main, the main body, when they made a scale for the synthesizer, that legitimized it. They cert- Oh, my you God. Know? Well, I mean, that Ernie Watts was telling... Of- you, know, er- you know, you have Harvey Mason, who's like... You can't get a more ridiculous jazz drummer anything, and you know he's programming his stuff into a chip, and they just put the chip in. I mean, it's just like what? Yeah. What the hell? You know, I, I just yep. you know, I, I mean, give me a sil- you know, Drews, give me a silver lining about the cyclical nature of music. Uh, Chuck Israel's told me that you know, prior to 1965, the people who were consuming and purchasing music were adults. It was the Glenn Miller, Dorsey. I mean, the list goes on and on. But it was people that were... Oh, yeah. They were educated. And then, you might be part of that. You are a boomer. But, you know, I mean, listen, the boomers came in. Million, 20, 15 million cats came in in the mid-60s with a lot of money. And they were teenagers. And obviously, it spawned what we know as like the psychedelic rock, free love revolution. But... uh all of a sudden, you had very unsophisticated cats, as we all are at that age, dictating what is popular music, and it kind of went downhill from there. Uh, I mean, I you know whether well, I, I, yeah. No, go ahead. No, I just I mean, I so my point is that Israel was talking about the going back to the 19th century, or even you know, it, pop music was crap then too. So I mean, there it, it, again, also let's be clear. I mean, Chuck Israel's was was singing uh, folk songs about the common man with Pete Seeger in 1950 and then in the recording studio with John Coltrane eight years later, Wavy Gravy was doing poetry and jazz with Jackie Byard and Jimmy Jufri up in Hartford. I mean, it was ridic- It was an anomaly. That time was an anomaly. And even through the 70s, it was still kind of hip. But I, I just... Give me a little silver lining in your mind about... about the cyclical nature of music and how some of the tenants and some of the aesthetic stuff that we're talking about, if you think it will come back around and what gives you hope? Let's put it this way. Um, and I, yeah, I, just I go, where, go where your mind goes. I mean, just go, you don't have to answer the question. Just go where you, where you want. You know, where society is today, it seems like a pendulum has swung all the way in one direction. Yeah. In the same way with music. And I think, and that's just the way it is. It's just a, 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 cyclic, a cyclical cycle. Cyclical. Um, and it's just, the pendulum's going to swing. Then it's going to swing the other way. It's going to be totally that. And it just goes back. It never stays in the middle. Like, you know, it's cool. But that's what, I kind of, that's sort of what makes things happen. Because, like I said before, like the good music will stay. You know, you had you know, you have Bach, you have Mozart and Brahms, and those things will stay. And some of the things they wrote probably weren't that good and didn't stay. 
but it's going to be the same thing. And with music, and hopefully we, you know, get away from. I mean, I you know the rap thing I'm not into, but there's there's probably some good stuff that's going to come out of it. It, it, what's uh, amazing, what's amazing, hopeless. you know, the one thing I will say, I don't listen to it, uh, but I don't need uh, it. I don't is, need, it is, in a, in, a, in a funny way, <laughs> when you go back and listen to Tom Rush or Pete Seeger and, and that the folk music of the early 60s, rap music is the folk music of this time. It's not, it, 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 they are speaking about what's happening in these communities, which is also very depressing because... In, but I mean that it's it's interesting that that is truly the most authentic folk music of today's time. Uh, you go back to the when the neighborhoods were segregated. And you can have your own opinions on whether that was healthy or not desegregation. But those segregated neighborhoods produced Marvin Gaye, Curtis Mayfield, Donny Hathaway, and they weren't singing about degradation. They were singing about love. And I know I don't want to get too into the yeah. sociology here, but. Um, but but yeah, I mean the, the 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 grooves are okay. But I mean even what what I go back to what Amram said that this electronic death beat, and you have people waiting outside these clubs to to get off on this stuff that does music that doesn't breathe. Uh, there's no space in the music. There's no dynamics in the music, and it's been assimilated and digested, and and it, and it, you know it, it just it's. It just seems to me like God. I I hope you're right about the cyclical stuff, because um, you know. I mean, in some ways, do you think that? I remember Alan Schwartzberg told me that by the early '70s, jazz became an inside joke for jazz musicians. And I know you 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 had a career in the studios, and but it got too precious. The music got so precious, and people were stopped being able to tap their feet to it. And they lost, it got too free. And I wonder where you came down on that. Because, I mean, ultimately we're here because that pendulum swung back the other direction. So, I mean, even though I love the other extreme and the other direction, do you think that, that you, you know, when you hearken back to those early, you know, even if when you were off the road and you were checking out uh, some of the fusion music, uh, whatever that means, like, did the music become too precious at a certain point? Um, wow, too precious. I remember uh, Jan Hammer said that, that, you know, jazz started to eat its own tail, you know? There was nowhere else to go. Well, my, I think, I mean, as far as jazz, well, think about this. Yeah. Uh, and we're talking about uh, mainly jazz or popular, popular music. And what it is, like when my parents were going out, it was Glenn Miller, Benny Goodman. That was what they heard on the radio when they're parking in Lover's Lane or whatever they're right, doing. Right, right, right. So when they heard that music, it always made them feel good. And then, you know, and that's what, for every generation, like I remember when I was a senior, graduating from high school, you had uh, Happy Together, Grooving on a Sunday Afternoon, oh, those things. And come every on, Every time I dude. hear those songs... I feel good, you know, because it, it makes me... It fe- you make, it fe- that's right, you nailed it. Right. It makes you feel good. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. And and music is about feeling good. Absolutely. You know, and even the blue, you know, like the blues can, can can be about bad things, but it still makes you feel good to get it out. Well, no, but that, I, I just and, wanna, before you go on, I, I just want to say something. that, that You talk about the music that stands the test of time, the, 
the mu- the music that's really quality will always remain as the musicians. I mean, jazz has fallen out of popularity, but the blues has also stayed the, stayed the test of time. It's stuck around. Uh, oh, it has. Yeah, you and know, a, and yeah, people can feel it. It's great. I we I did a tour. I did two tours. Uh, Philip Morris. When the cigarette thing. Oh came yeah, down. dude! They supported all those co- cool. I got these. I got this Ron and, Carter poster. Cool jazz cigarettes, man. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm on one of them, <laughs> and I did my shoot. My shoot was just me and Ron playing together for three hours. Oh my! While they took God. a million pictures of us. Oh, this is great. And I kept going. I kept apologizing. I said, Ron, I'm sorry. Nah, he's uh, dude. Ron, Ron is you know like once you break down the. That sort of uh, prickliness. That dude's just a teddy bear, man. Oh, he was—he was great. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I, I, I had all these stupid stories, but uh, so I saw him at a thing. It was uh, Jerry Dodgen's birthday, maybe oh or something. My God, dude. And so I—I I was the uh, coach manager of the eight hundred two softball team back in the eighties. This is so great. And. Or maybe early. Who was on that? Then. Who was on that team, dude? I mean, the Cranch well, was, was Cranch on that team. All younger guys. Uh, no, but Cran was great. Cran, I dude, Cran, I, I, dude, rest, dude, that dude was him and Mickey Roker and Duke Pearson. Get me back to that apartment when they were playing music. I mean, that is unbelievable. Oh God. Yeah, talk about a guy that well, he let it rip every time. Dude, that dude but was I'll so ridiculous. Yeah, go about ahead. Him. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 Ron Carter came out. And, we wanted to be on the team. And I swear, man, he hit a ball one time. I've never seen anybody hit a ball so far. Are you kidding me? And his knees were, his knees were so bad he could only get to second. Dude. So I, I see him like 20 He's years hot, later my God. at this thing for, for, for dodging. And he had a, I guess it was his daughter with him. And, and I went up to him. I said, I don't, Ron, I don't know if you remember me, but I I said, I just remember that ball that you hit. Oh, my God. I never saw a ball hit that hard. He <laughs> turned to the girl and said, see, I told you. I told he's you. Like, I I met, he's like, I've been telling you that story since it happened. You remember that? Yeah. <laughs> That's so great. What a great – dude, he – wait, so was he a righty? He hit the ball left center field? I mean, just – there was no fence? He – he just hit it to center field, and it just kept going. Going and no going and going. Central Park. Oh, this now, is the other unbelievable. Thing about about – Cranshaw, yeah. he got drafted. Who the, who the heck drafted him? I think it was the Detroit Lions. Are you kidding me? As a cornerback. Nope. Oh, my. I, that is breaking. I never. I don't think that's ever been told publicly. Are you serious? And he said, I went, maybe it was the, the Baltimore Colts. I, I think it was one yeah. of those two clubs. Huh. And he said, I went to training camp. And I realized by the third day I was going to be no more than a live tackling dummy. <laughs> he said, I, I, I left, went in the Army, went to Korea, and they were on a bivouac one night. And they woke up in the morning, and all the guards had been killed, and they went through the camp and slashed every other guy's throat. And he was one guy that that they, they I guess he was the odd or even guy that didn't slash his throat. I'm sorry. The the, the, the Koreans went in and slaughtered the whole all the troops. They killed the guards. Holy shit! And then they every other guy they slashed his throat. 
Dude, Drews, you are dro- – Drews, I mean, this is so inside, man. I cannot – dude, that's gruesome. I mean, I mean, Cranshaw, I always wondered – I did an interview with him a lo- 10 years ago, and I, I definitely not found my voice on the radio, but I was surprised at how modest and matter-of-fact he was. I guess now I know why. He's That guy saw some serious stuff, not even – because I thought the heaviest stuff – you know, he had to – I mean, he was one of those first call guys for Blue Note, and I was talking to him about guys like Grant Green. Those those mid '60s Blue Note albums are just so fresh; they're so amazingly hot. And oh. I mean, Grant was basically getting paid in smack. I mean, he wasn't even getting paid in money, but Cranshaw was just amazing, like, right? yeah. I mean, Cranshaw was just like, and he looked at me or he talked to me on the phone, just like we're doing. And he's like. Yeah, you know, I, I never got too close to anybody. I, it was a job for me. I we enjoyed playing the music, and then I got out of there. And then you hear him with like Candido and Sonny Rollins. You're like, oh my god, dude, this dude! And then he's dropping. Well, and think you know, about it. Yeah. He was he was on the first Saturday Night Live band. He was on the original, uh, and for years on uh, Sesame Street. Well, no, he told me that story. He though, that's the greatest story. He said. I'll send you that interview because Chuck Israels was doing House of Flowers, and he said, "Bob, do you want? Uh, I got. I, I'm leaving Sesame Street. Do you want the gig?" He showed up, and the the rhythm section was a mess. They were pulling, dragging, pushing. Raposo was there. Cranshaw got up, and the first right. thing the first thing he said, he got, "I just got to be the anchor, lock it in." And once he did that, everything started to feel good. After that, it was that was history. You know, that was around the time you graduated and hit the road with Lionel. But that, yeah, that was unbelievable, man. Yeah, that was around 1969. That, when, yep. Or 70 when that's, he joined. That's right. Um, so, so I'm sitting around in New York and not doing much, doing a couple little wedding gigs or bar mitzvahs, whatever. And and I said, man, you know, I got I got to think about something here. You yeah. It's going to go on like this. This is not going to work. I mean, I'm single, but it's okay. So I truck down to NYU. I enlist. Uh, I'm going to take the test, the, the law boards, not the law boards, you know, they take it into law school. Right. And uh, where am I going with this thing? Cranshaw. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'm <laughs> So anyway, I, I did that. I did pretty well on it. And I'm about to start uh, applying to law schools, and I get a call to go down and they were going to do this Broadway show and they were going to start out with a trio and it was Grady Tate, Cranshaw and this piano player. Um, Roland Hanna? Har- no, Harold. Uh, he's a big big writer out in L.A. now. Really? Um, Harold? Come. Yeah, interesting. Harold Wheeler. Harold Wheeler. You know that I know Clarence yeah. Wheeler. I don't know Harold. Maybe maybe I do. I don't know. He's a he's a, he's a big writer out in L.A. Anyway, so then they were gonna they were gonna expand it, and they hired Cecil and Ronnie Bridgewater. Oh dear! So it was gonna be a rhythm section and two horns, and then the union said, "Look, you're going into a theater. There's a minimum. Right. You got to have X amount of guys." So then they put calls out to things. So I got a call at three o'clock in the morning. I show up. What, on Radio Registry? Did you get Radio Registry call? No, a friend of mine who got called for it, and he was doing Chorus Line. 
So he didn't want to. He didn't want to leave that. Right, show. right, so right, said, right. Look, call, call this guy Drews. He's great. You'll love him. <laughs> so I go there. I'm playing first trumpet. Oh. with Grady Tate, oh, Ken Shaw, oh, and it was the Lena Horn show. Oh, man, uh, that I thing, that thing, like, that thing, that thing was a that was a gateway for you, man. That was. Holy so forget God. law school and have a good life, <laughs> just off and running. And I actually met my wife through there, you know, but that's a whole nother story. Yeah, I noticed so, that there's these sort of like, you know, everybody has these these uh, forks in the road. I mean, and then if for you and, and a lot of the musicians, it, it happens where, you know, you never even had to take the bar, law school. You never even got close to taking the bar. You never even had to contemplate. You know, it's just like that inkling of saying, I got to get something together here. And the minute you start to take that more traditional route, something opens up in music and boom, the rest is history. You know, those types of things, I think, happened more often, at least to a few dozen more people than it does. to. I just feel like those opportunities for magic are so limited now. And, I, but, you know, but before we wrap up set one here, Drews, I just wanted to ask you. There's only two letters that separate magic and music, and I was hoping you could talk about a time in your career when when you left your physical body on the bandstand. When I left my physical body on the bandstand. Billy Cobham talked to me about, you know, being so physically exhausted. The guy never did a drug in his life. I mean, but, you know, like after one of these Mahavishnu tours, last set of a final show in France... And they were so exhausted. I mean, he was just exhausted. And he remembers seeing him, being able to watch himself on the side of the stage playing drums. He had actually left his body. Some people, you know, just accessing <laughs> wow. a, accessing your multidimensional self. Because we all, I mean, th there's such a spirit in the music that I love so much. Whether it's Woody Shaw or, you know, could be freaking John Abercrombie or, you know you know whatever you know like some random blues player playing mandolin or something but it you know it's this idea of like you know transcending this thinking mind and 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 entering the spirit mind and i just remember if, i just wanted to know if there was a story that came to mind that you could say kind of happened that happened to you that was probably that first night with buddy <laughs> right <laughs> right the, the harmon mute yeah i'm about to I haven't even played one song, and I'm about to get fired right off the bandstand. So you but just, and so at that point, know. you're like, I, I have to get out of my thinking mind, right? You had to just go into some other strata to, to not have to, because you'd be yeah. too worried then. Leave leave sweets and go right to Dizzy, you know? Oh, <laughs> man, style, You know, all right, it's time to amp it up a little bit here. If that's what he wants, that's what he's going to get, so... It kind of worked out, and I had the greatest time with Buddy. You know, he was terrific. Sure. If you tried to fight a guy like that, you know, forget it. You know, he'll eat you for lunch. You know, but uh, that was that was it. Um, no, I never really had that uh, out of body. You know, I'm sure I'll think of something as soon as we hang up. Well, it's but, like you know, it's it's it's. I mean, with that, just going back to the that Stanley Clark quote, you know, Wayne Shorter is talking about going to the store to get your grandma some milk. And it took me a minute to understand what that, what he was talking about, but it's like when you're on the bandstand and everybody is sort of locked in on a different frequency, but on the same level, 
and they're going for it as a group, it's like that feeling of devotion. It's beyond love. It's beyond uh, belief. It's you're going. You're doing it because it's salvation. It's de- it's devotion. It's like it, you know, you do anything for oh. your grandma, you know. And it's like that kind of wanting and willingness to go there, even if you fall on your face. You know, that's kind of what I. I just feel like that is what is so missing in music is the wherewithal to fall off the tracks, but then get back on because the audience ain't going to know anyway. They're going to know if you make a big deal about it. That's right. And just, yeah. And go for it. And like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, You you know what I, what I was just, I just thinking about the story with Mel Lewis. Yeah. And you know, cause he had everybody in Mel's band solo. You know, it's like a 20 minute every tune was 20 but, minutes long yeah <laughs> it was crazy yeah. but uh but mel he had this innate ability to play differently behind like he would play one way for Lovano. i love this and one way this for is me. what i'm talking about dude you know and then and he played and it it made you sound better you know, you know what I mean? Oh, like, dude, that's what I'm talking complimented about. That's exactly what I'm talking about. It's it's the stealth. You, it's that ability to know the player and then just, you know, the dynamics, but making it different for every cat. I mean, that to me is like, that is such a craft. And it's also, that's when the music become, that's when the, you know, the, the sum, the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. Whatever that line is, it's just it's like that's when the magic comes into play. And that those guys were all wizards like that, man. Th- those drummers, man, they were oh. all like that. Mel was probably like the most underappreciated, underrated guy of all time. I mean, he did a ton of studio work and was commuting between L.A. and New York, L.A. and New York, you know, flying just working, but. Uh, I wanted to tell you this story about. By the way, I just want to ask you a question. Did you only realize that he was playing differently listening back to the tapes, or in the real time, did you realize right away that he was playing differently for every soloist? Oh, I realized right away. Wow. Because every soloist demanded a different. Like Lovano, you know, uh, he he had his thing and still has his thing. And he. And Mel would go, and but then, the, like for for me, he knew what would work for me, you know. I guess, and sure, it was terrific. But yeah, I'll tell you this. Yeah, go story. ahead, please. It's and then we'll, we'll yeah, we'll we'll, we'll yeah, up. we'll wrap it up. We'll yeah. Do, yeah. do it again. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I like to tell people that sweets changed my life, mm. both musically and, uh, you know, just personally. So. I'm on the bandstand with him. He's sitting next to me with the Philip Morris 12-week tour, right? And a lot of guys put sweets down because he had that thing where he just played and it's just like he played that one note, you know? But he had a way of doing it to make a quarter note or he would play the tonic. Say, you're, you know, you're playing blues and D-flat. So for us, it's E-flat. He would play that tonic you know, just no exotic notes. And I'm sitting next to him going, what the hell is that note he's playing? <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm sitting next to him and I go, holy shit, just, he's just playing the root 
He's playing the root. How can it sound that great? Wow. You know, and wow. that was one thing I, I got from him, that and the time. And then we had a, there was a point in my life, so I'm working a lot. I'm doing Sesame. I'm doing a lot of sessions. I'm working on Broadway at night. And we just had our third kid. And we had a house, you know. And my wife was starting. She's like, she's, I don't know what to do, man. She's just, I'm like, I'm not seeing anybody, but I just feel like I'm not a, like a, a single woman anymore. All I'm doing is working and taking care of the kids. And sure. She and she went to see a, a priest. She went to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist, one or the other. And so one day I'm going to Sesame Street, and she says, Drew, I don't know, man. She says, I don't know if I'm going to be here when I get back. i got to figure out my life. Huh. So I'm going, great. I got three kids, a house, and I'm going <laughs> to, so, anyway, I come back that evening. I, that's all I had was the sesame thing. And I come back that evening, and I walk in the door. She's there, of course, and she's humming at the kitchen. She's making dinner. She's humming. So first of all, I had to go outside and look at the number on the house to see if I was it. Right, 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 right. So I walk in, I go, uh, hey, what's babe, going on? Okay. She goes, she goes, everything is great. Everything is great. I'm back. Everything is great. Whoa. I said, what happened? She goes, Sweet's called today. I said, he wanted to talk to me? She goes, no. He just called to talk to me. Now, and I had nothing. I had talked to him. Wow, dude. Are you kidding me? Nothing. It was, it was this thing. That, and that's why he was just a magical guy. Dude, that is divine. That's divine timing right there. You know, I mean, that's the, that's the magic that I'm talking about. It doesn't always happen on the bandstand. Yeah. That, but that, you know, I mean, listen. You know, I was married for 13 years, and we had two amazing, beautiful children. But, um, you know, at the last few years, it wasn't working, and that's fine. It was. It's actually much healthier for the family. But if you, you know, when you're in a situation where you're seeing something that you know something fall apart that you desperately don't want to fall apart it does take something beyond this world beyond this logic to 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 seal the gap and and that is validation right there i mean that is in unbe- oh it's unbelievable he he had, that's the, that's what he was he had that gift you know and uh, we just the other uh, Saturday we just celebrated thirty three years. So, <laughs> hey, you know what, man? Yeah, and here's to another thirty three Drews. Honestly, man, like uh, it was you know thanks to uh, Ronnie Zito for hooking this up, man. But uh, it was really a great hang. Oh, dude. Zito's the best. Yeah, I mean, the best. He's the best, man. He, I just yeah, Burliner won't pick up his phone, dude. The guy's hard impossible to get a hold of, man. Uh Really? I'm. I, I want to just want to catch a hang with Burliner, man. <laughs> he won't answer oh, his phone. That's weird. Yeah, I know. I, I, it's okay. Well, I don't. I'll, yeah. You know, I. I going, dude, honestly, going. if you could, if you could help me with Sebesky and I don't know if you've checked out my archives, but uh, uh, Lovano and Sebesky would be so important for me to get to. If you can anyway help me get to those cats, I would love to hang just with them. Just send me. Just send me. A, send me a text. And I'll give you my email. Yeah. And then I'll I'll uh, I'll give you I'll hook you up as best I can with both those guys. 
Oh, you'll love Lovano. Dude, I, no, I mean, dude, it's just, it's, it, it honestly, Drews, you, you, we cooked the groove for 90 minutes. Did you have a good time? I mean, because that's all I really care about, just having fun. I did. It's yeah. great. It's yeah. great. Are you kidding? <laughs> I love talking about music. It's good. You, you, you made me think of some things I hadn't thought about. In that's while, what, that, and that, that's what my show's about, man. So I'll send you some stuff uh, to end up, uh, we'll do set two real soon. You got it. I have a new resolve, and I'm going to get my horn out and start practicing. Yo, yo for stuff. sweets, man. Frick, fucking A, man. Unreal, dude. <laughs> I tell you, there you go. Yeah, man. All right, man. Keep swinging, man. Send me a text. I'll get you that stuff. All right, man. All right, thank thank you, you, brother. Be good. Later. Uh, you too. Peace. Yep. Bye. <sighs> Thanks to Ronnie Zito for that. Great hang with Glenn Drews. Incredible stories. Back on Power Talk. We'll be back. Later this week. Until then, peace.